0: So like I said, uh, I, the message today is about unity and truth. The first half is going to be about unity. This, the last half is going to be about truth. But I believe that this message, both of these things are really important to God. And that honestly, if I'm going to be just really frank this morning, uh, this is a little bit of a difficult text uh, that we're going to read to uh, read through. And honestly, there's some, there's some gut checking moments uh, that we're going to talk about this morning. But with that said, I, I want to say this. That is not my desire this morning to critique anyone, that my heart is pastoral. Uh, I want to pastor you into a life of apprenticeship to Jesus. My motivation is not at all to call anyone out or to bring condemnation on you, uh, but instead call you to follow Jesus in a deeper way. My deep conviction is uh, that the meaning of life is not really always up and to the right. More money, more success, more health, more wealth, or whatever it is. But really, it's to be with Jesus. Union with God. To participate and live in an interactive experience with love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's, kinda, that's where we're going this morning. To become like Jesus. To become a person of character and emotional maturity t- defined by agape. To become a person of love with all that comes with that wisdom and fortitude and endurance, compassion and all that, Uh, and even more. I want you to do what Jesus did to make a contribution to our city, to our world, to be who God made you to be, and to do what God has called you to do. And I think that, honestly, if we were to read this and, and have a misunderstanding of today's text, it could really stunt you in your growth towards apprenticeship to Jesus. And so uh, would you stand with me this morning as I read uh, today's text uh, from Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 5, 11. It says this, starting in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the feet of the apostles. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and you have kept for yourself some of the money? you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. So Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, man, isn't this just a fun passage? (laughs) Aren't you excited about this? Like, I'm pretty sure that this is going to be the next Tale story, right? Like, they're going to get, like, a like an eggplant and maybe, uh, who knows, like, an avocado and then, you know, ananias and sapphira. And then they're just, and then just going to hit the food processor and just gone, right? Like, this is going to, I mean, I'm pretty sure... Somebody could make a killing off, like, this being a children's book, right? The story, like, you got, like, Noah, oh, sweet, right? And Joseph and the Technicolor Co, and then you got Ananias and Sapphira, right? Um, man, what a, what a great story. Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier today, uh, the message to, is going to start talking about unity. Well, uh, That's where this... Uh, Really, this passage starts in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It talks about unity. Um, And uh, so I want to kind of start us off by saying this. This is your first fill in the blank. It says this, a a Christian community cannot survive without unity. A Christian community cannot survive without unity. Uh, 32 says all of the believers were one in heart and mind. Now, if you recall back to Pastor Jake's message uh, last week when he talked about the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we are picking up right where he left off, and right where he left off was that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they went out and preached boldly the word of God. And then it says that the believers were unified. They were of one heart and mind. Did you know that unity is so important to God? And that scripture is absolutely clear about this. You know that we may have great programs, good music, good preaching, but apart from unity, we are just actors. We're just hypocrites. We're, we, we have to have unity. Disunity in the church is oftentimes at worst swept under the rug or at best taken a lot less seri- seriously than most other sin. Uh, we don't often talk about this. Uh, we have forgotten how our divisions affect God and an unbelieving world. Our casual dismissive attitude towards disunity is incredibly dangerous for three reasons. The first reason I would say is this. I think that the first reason that it's so, uh, I guess, hard is that, you know, God hates it. It's disgusting to God. Uh, He's disgusted by it. Secondly, our disunity, it confuses the world. The world doesn't know what to do with it. They're confused by it. And thirdly, uh, it might be evidence that the Holy Spirit's not in us, not with us. So maybe you're sitting here this morning and thinking, man, I've never heard a message preached on unity or disunity being called a sin. I want you to know that there's a lot of scripture in the, the Old Testament and the New Testament that talk about unity. And so I'm going to read a few, uh, a few passages to you uh, that maybe you want to write down the references for that you can go back and look and reread later. Because God is so serious about unity within the body of Christ. Not just in our local church, but even as a global church, uh, God cares about unity. Quick commercial break for you. Uh, Just a little pause about taking notes. Uh, You know what? Maybe, my hope is that every week you take notes. Uh, I hope that you jot down notes. Why? Well, I think one reason is because it's helpful to help you remember. Um, It helps you to look, you know, I look back on old sermon notes from years ago, and it helps me remember what God's done. But I want to tell you this truth. You can't live out of a revelation that you've forgotten. And so taking notes helps you remember what God says and does, and it's good to to look back from time to time and remember what God is saying. So I tried to leave some space at the bottom of your page for you to write your own notes, not just fill in the blanks, but for you to jot down what God is speaking to your heart. And that's what I, I hope, is that you actively listen and hear what God has to say to you this morning. All right, commercial break over. Anyways, uh, let's, let's take a moment before I read these uh, passages of scripture, and I want to remind you this. that the, the things that I'm reading to you this morning are God's sacred commands, and that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and that these are not just suggestions, these are not just uh, God hopes so, but these are commands. So let me start. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. These are all scriptures about unity. It says this, there are six things uh, that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that uh, devises wicked plans and feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. John chapter 17, verse 20 to 23 says this. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, that we would or that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them to the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. A lot of talk about unity there, right? Titus chapter 3, verse 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable. And worthless As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Yikes. You think God takes unity seriously? I think so. First uh, 1 Corinthians: 1:10. 1 I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be yet united in the same mind and the same judgment. Last one, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 2 says this. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord of one mind, a lot of scripture on unity, God is serious about unity, I I, I see a lot of disunity, I know that you have probably, if you've been in the church any length of time, have have seen in church fighting, in church debates, quarreling, people uh, that, believers that fight on the outside or, or, or have issues on the outside. I'm sure that you've seen believers condemn other believers uh, on social media or, or put people in you know, each other's place. I mean, it's just, it's, it's everywhere. And God hates it. God hates disunity. God wants us to be encouragers, to be people that lift each other up and to be united, to be united for his purpose. Francis Chan writes in his book, Until Unity, quote, Have you ever considered how outsiders must view us? Try to imagine an unbeliever going online trying to make sense of all the different denominations, church splits, competitive advertising, and even open slander. It would look like my family screaming at each other frantically while walking through an orphanage trying to meet new kids that are waiting to be adopted. The kids in there would be so put off There's a reason people aren't anxious to join our family. What picture of God are we showing to the world? The church is supposed to be a reflection of the image of God and the aroma of Christ to those who are perishing. It is no wonder that people are not attracted. The world currently hates us not because we resemble Jesus, but because we don't. We are arrogant, and there's a serious disconnect between our beliefs and our actions, Scripture teaches that our influence on the world is directly tied to the unity that we display. Meanwhile, we continue to publicly degrade one another, oblivious to how we appear to the world. We continue to draw lines that make sense to us, but not those watching. Don't forget that we are talking about real people that are headed for a real hell. Don't just lump everyone into some vague group. We are talking about your friends, your cousins, your own children and neighbors. They are all glad that Christianity works for you, but they don't see any need to be saved by Jesus. According to scripture, that would change if the church were united." End quote. These scriptures make it pretty clear that God is pretty concerned about unity. Uh, The second fill in the blank for you is that to have, uh, or that division in the church comes from an absence of the Holy Spirit. We cannot obtain unity by ourselves. Did you know that? We are too broken, we are too messed up uh, to obtain unity by ourselves. It just cannot happen. Some believers believe unity happens when there is total agreement or conformity, which I think, believe, I think really opens the doors to like occultism or legalism. Unity is defined by having one heart, one soul, and having all things in common here in this scripture. Some of the verses that I quoted to you from 1 Corinthians or Philippians 2 talk about this same thing, having one mind, one love, one judgment. How does the Holy Spirit accomplish this? By reminding us that we are loved and saved by grace and that all we have is his, not ours. That's how we live in unity. Um, the next fill in the blank is this. To have unity, we must hold things Lightly, as servants, not as owners. See, we need to be reminded that the stuff that we have, the church that we attend, and even the ministries that we are a part of are not our own, but they are the Lord's for the furtherance of his kingdom, not my own kingdom. I think it's really easy for our stuff to get a grip on us. Our roles, our positions, the things that we own, we Uh, We can let those things grip who we are. But here in Acts chapter 4, it says that that's not how we're supposed to live. Um, You know that when you hold tightly onto your stuff, you have the grip of death. That we're supposed to hold things lightly so that the Lord can give and take away. Did you know that? That's how we're supposed to live, with open hands. But when we start to grip our stuff, grip our positions, grip our ministries, whatever it might be, we squeeze the life right out of it. Now some might believe, or some might think, you know what, if you grip too hard, you know, God will just break your fingers and he'll take his stuff back. Wrong. That's not how, God is the perfect gentleman. He's not breaking your fingers. But what he does say, hey, if that's what you want, Okay, it's not what I want for you, but okay. And what ends up happening is he just removes his spirit from whatever it is that you're holding on to. He just removes his spirit from you or from whatever that is. I mean, how many ministries, how many churches have we seen where somebody's holding on and years later, the wind just blows away those, boom, the spirit, those ministries, those churches are just gone. Because the spirit of God is not in those things. He's removed his spirit and saying, that's how you want to live. You just keep that grip. But she's just thing: when, we when we surrender to God and we allow God to hold those things, and we don't possess them, but we allow, to, we remember that we're just servants to Christ and that it's his. It's life. It's restoration. See, when we live in unity through the power of the Holy Spirit, fruit comes from that. Fruit comes, you know, you know why that is? Because when we grip our own things, we're gripping it for our own purposes. We have our own thoughts and our own mind, and we have our own ideas about what we want to do with these certain things. But God says, I have my own ideas. My ways are not your ways, right? God uses the foolish to shame the wise, right? God, how many, how many things in the Bible happen that are just so odd, like, hey, I'm gonna, we're going to conquer this city. How are we going to do it? We're not going to use guns and ammo. We're going to march around the city, and then the walls are going to fall down. Right? You know, I'm, I'm going to take out this one big fighter, but I'm not going to use anybody who's trained in, uh, in the war. I'm not going to use swords and shields. I'm just going to use a guy who's a shepherd who tends to flocks. Right? I mean, how many times do we see this where just God's ways are not our ways, and when we grip things, God says, man, that's not what I want, but I'll let you have it. Um, you know, the, the early church was known by who possessed them not by what they possessed. So this morning I ask you the same question. Are you known by who possesses you rather than what you possess? Do you know, do people know that the spirit of God fills you and grips your life? Or are you just kind of run with the kind of things of the world, you know? Just pursuing the up and to the right. You know what I'm talking about? The health, the wealth, the, all that stuff. What, what is in our, in our lives? You know, when, you know, I get it. It's hard to let go of our stuff. We've worked hard for our stuff. You know, we like our stuff. You know, we've worked for it. We want it. But uh, that's not what God wants. You know, honestly, to live with open hands is countercultural. It is counter to the culture that we live in. And the people here in Acts, they were the most generous people on earth. Nobody was like, hey, that's my car, or hey, that's my house, or hey, that's my toothbrush. Well, okay, maybe there were some limits, but um, ultimately, the gospel had done this. The gospel had loosened their grip on their stuff and tightened their grip on people. They, 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 let, they let go of the things and picked up people, Say, we're going to take care of people. We're going to do right by people. We're going to live in unity with one another. We're going to let the we're going to let this stuff go. And we're going to live in unity. We're going, to, we're going to pick each other up. And that's what always happens when the gospel gets a hold of someone. Your, the hold on your stuff loosens and the hold on people tightens. Uh, your next fill in the blank is that unity is not automatic, but symptomatic of being one in Christ. Verse 33 and 34 say this, With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, when uh, those who owned land or houses sold them and they brought the money from the sales... Uh, to the feet of the apostles. A united fellowship is not one known by the absence of conflict, but by their willingness to endeavor and to love one another through all things. So I'm not saying that every single person in this entire room, in this entire church, has to have the same thoughts and the same ideas at all the time. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that for us to be united, we have to just be purposed. We have to just be committed to endeavoring with one another. Endeavoring to have unity is the evidence that we've been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, endeavoring is laborious. It's hard work, right? Endeavoring with one another, putting up with uh, each other's faults and flaws and uh, idiosyncrasies, right? But that's our challenge. That's our command from God is to be committed to doing that, Because without it, when we are not endeavoring with one another, the church is lifeless. It's hard for us to keep our egos in check. I get it. Because, man, it feels so good to put another believer in their place on Facebook. Oh, doesn't it feel so good just to tell somebody off? Right? And it's difficult to not always want to control things. And to not always want to have our our, our way with everything that we decide we know best on. We love the feeling of being right, and it's very difficult to lay down these things to pursue things like humility and peace, to serve and be selfless. These people in Acts were laboring, endeavoring together for the sake of the kingdom of God and for the sake of one another. Do we as a church, as PFN, do we endeavor together for those two things? I I, I think, and I believe that a goal for our church should be that we should be known for the way that we endeavor together for the kingdom of God and the way that we care for our people. That we endeavor together for one another, right? People who are united in the body of Christ and captivated by the gospels are always generous. That's your next fill in the blank. They're always generous. Uh, chapter 30, or Verse 36 and 37 says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. See, uh, I don't know how much you've read about Barnabas. I don't know how much you know about Barnabas, but Barnabas is one of the coolest people in Acts. See, uh, Barnabas is one of these people who's been gripped by the gospel, and his life uh, reflects that in every area. Uh, some, some kind of points about Barnabas uh, that kind of, I think, tie into today's message. Number one, I think what we see here from Barnabas is that, number one, he's, he's, a, he's the lead giver. He's the first one to say, you know, I'll sell something and I'll, I'll give it to the apostle. I'm going to help people out. People that are captivated by the gospel are generous. Um, Barnabas is also the first person to embrace Paul once he's converted from being Saul to Paul. You know, Saul was a Christian killer. Right, Saul killed Christians. You know he was, he, he was notorious. And so when he was changed by the power of the Holy Spirit to Paul, there was a lot of Christians that were really nervous about that. They were like, this dude, <laughs> this dude, I don't know if I trust this guy. But Barnabas, he was the first guy to stand up for Paul and say, you know, I think the, the Lord or the Holy Spirit has done something in this guy's life. And he stood up for Paul. That's, that's Barnabas. Lead giver stands up for Paul. Uh, another thing, you know that he was... Uh, he led the way in Antioch for the church to diversify. He led in church diversification because what happens is in Antioch, the church is starting to preach and starting to reach Gentiles. And who heads that up? Barnabas. He's like, oh, I believe in diversity. I believe in, in, in reaching out. And so he starts, he starts pastoring and loving and caring for the Gentiles. Um, he also was put in charge of taking relief money to Jerusalem when there was a famine. Did you know all this about Barnabas? I mean, he is kind of a prominent person. I think he's probably one of the coolest people that's not an apostle in the Bible. Um, And then, did you know this, that later on, um, Paul goes on a missionary trip, and Barnabas is the first guy to sign up with him. He says, I'll go, take me. And then, there's this guy named John Mark, who joins them. And uh, John Mark gets scared halfway through the trip, and he goes home. He leaves, and he abandons Paul. And after a little while, he sits at home and he repents and he comes back and he says, Paul, you know, I'm ready to join back in. And Paul says, no way, brother. Like, John Mark, you know, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. You're not going to make me do that again. And you know what Barnabas says? I'll, I'll take him on. I, I'll show some grace, Paul. <laughs> I'll give a second chance, Paul. <laughs> I'll give this guy a second chance. And you know what's interesting is that uh, later on, in one of Paul's letters, he comes back and talks about how Barnabas was right—that he did what was right—and uh, and he took he took on John Mark. See, he is the really kind of the display of uh, of a gospel-transformed life. I mean, Barnabas was changed from the inside out, and everything he did reflected unity and generosity. It reflected the truth of God. He was about it. He was he was a Really a good picture of a transformed gospel man. But then we move into uh, Acts chapter 5 with this story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. I want to know this. Who's behind this? Satan. Uh, just so you know, this is the first post-cross appearance of Satan. Right. So, so we obviously have Satan involved in the life of Jesus, but then Jesus is killed on the cross and he is resurrected. And then this is the first appearance of Satan since then. See, I think the plan for Satan uh, pre-cross was to kill Jesus. But when Jesus was resurrected and came back to life, his new plan, which is still his current plan, is to destroy Jesus' church from the inside. See, Satan was behind this, right? Peter says, Who is, you know, how have you allowed Satan to grip your heart like this? See, that's still the truth. Satan, Satan is still trying to detro- destroy Jesus' church from the inside. He's still trying to convince you to create disunity, to create discord, to uh, have quarreling and fighting, to be nitpicky and to fight over the the, the craziest of things. He wants you to be deceitful, to lie, to, to do whatever it can to hurt the witness of the church. Have you ever thought about it like that? That your life is a witness to the church of God, to the body of Christ, and if he, can just act, if he can just convince you to act without integrity, if he can just convince you to, to, do some, to get into some scandal, to do something ridiculous, well, then he's accomplishing his goal because he knows that you're hurting the church's witness, and that's what he wants. And here's what happens here. Uh, he talks about that. Um, he was in that. So unity. Unity in the body leaves no room for deceit. That's your next fill in the blank. Unity in the body... Re- le- leaves no room for deceit. Um, verse 5, When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who had heard what happened. Then some young men came, in, came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. That's probably a tense situation, don't you think? Right? Ananias, he's dead. Sapphira comes in later, has no idea what's going on, and Peter knows what's up. And he asks her point blank, "What would you do in that situation, uh, husbands and wives? Right? You, what would you do here? Right? Sapphira, you, they 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 had kind of gotten together, and they they had talked about how they were going to." Uh, to, to misrepresent themselves, really? This was a really interesting, really difficult thing. Um, what would you have done in this situation if you were Sapphira? I want to ask you that because um, in marriage relationships, once you get married, you're supposed to submit to one another, right? You're supposed to, to love one another. But I want you to know that submission never means following your spouse into sin, it, may, it might mean making a mistake here or two, right, where maybe, you know, somebody thinks that we should move or we should take a new job, and that might, that might be a flub up. But it doesn't ever mean sin. It doesn't mean leading or following your spouse. And, it, right, they, they, they convened on this, right? It wasn't like uh, Ananias had some plan and Sapphira was totally clueless and then she just said, you know, said the wrong thing. No, they, they had conspired to do this. Uh, that's important. Um, I hope that we realize that this is a big deal. Uh, Once we, if you are in a a marriage relationship, that once you're married, uh, we don't just relinquish all of our life to the more spiritually mature person in the relationship. We don't just say, oh, well, it's all this on this person. No, we've got to take accountability for our own actions, right? Sapphira needed to take accountability for her own life. And uh, I I just want to remind you, husbands and wives, don't ever substitute your husband or wife for the Holy Spirit. Don't ever do that. It'll mess you up. You're going to have to answer on judgment day for your own lifestyle choices, your own generosity, your own involvement in church or lack thereof. Right? Whether your kids are in church or or not. Right? For your own life, you you have to give account for that. But also you have to remember that your sin doesn't just affect you, but it affects your family. It affects your husband, it affects your wife, it affects your kids. That your sin affects other people. Now, to our knowledge, they didn't have children, but man, it affected them so greatly that they died. I mean, that's a big deal. Sin, sin is deadly. That's deadly. It'll mess up your family. It'll mess up your life. It'll derail you. And so you've got to remember that, hey, the Holy Spirit is asking me to do what I can do, and I've got to get an account for my own life. I've got to do what God has asked me to do. Moving on, verse 9, Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So, why did Ananias and Sapphira do what they did? Why did they do this thing? Why did they conspire? And well, it's because they had uh, their life was a symptomatic of a deeper problem. And that deeper problem is that these people had a love of money and a love of people's praise. See, Ananias and Sapphira, they loved money, but they also loved the praise of people. So what did they do? They sold some land and they kept some money for themselves, but then misrepresented themselves and acted like they were giving everything, but they didn't give everything because giving everything got praise from people. Like, hey, look at us. We're going to be really generous. We're going to give all this money that we just got from this land. And we're going to give it to the apostles. But psych, we kept some of it. Now, you might think, well, this is just a story. This is just from Ananias and Sapphira. I would never do something like that. I would never keep my money and not give it to the Lord. I would never begrudgingly give to the Lord. No way. But I think... That if we're serious, if we're honest, we've had moments where we've dealt with this same issue. Dealt with this same, are we going to be obedient? Are we going to be honest and have integrity? Or are we just going to slide under the radar or try to anyways? Yeah, they they had a love of money and the praise of people. And they didn't want to give it all away. They're They're kind of the opposite of Barnabas. Barnabas was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he gave his stuff away to people, but they were filled with love of money and a love of praise, so they lied about their generosity to gather the praise of people. Sin, like lying, uh, comes from somewhere. These lies go all the way down to the deepest parts of our heart. See, I talk, I, if, there, if there's stuff in your life like uh, jealousy, uh, deceitfulness, um, other kind of cheating, whatever else that might be... Uh, those are just symptoms of deeper problems. those are just symptoms of deeper heart problems. so if you if you struggle to, to control your tongue, if you have anger issues, if there's just stuff going on in your life, those are just symptoms of a, of a heart problem. See unfortunately, as Christians, oftentimes we try to just uh, deal with symptoms and not root problems. Would you agree so uh, so I would say that oftentimes things like lies, like Ananias and Sapphira, the symptom of their deep problem was was lying. And that was kind of like the smoke from a fire. But what we often try to do is just get out the fan and blow the smoke somewhere else instead of just going and putting out the fire. Because, see, the fire is what's causing the issue. And the longer you let that fire grow, the bigger it's going to become. And you can fan the smoke away for a little while, but then when that little fire becomes a bigger fire, which becomes a forest fire in your life, then there's no blowing the smoke away. That's California, right? And so that's what we have got to do. See, Ananias and Sapphire, they didn't get to the heart of these things. They made some really bad decisions and, uh, you know, they, they loved these things. They didn't, they didn't deal with the fire Uh, in my own life, you know, I've dealt with some of these things. I've had this desire to, to, to receive the praise of people. And and that was a, a root heart issue in my life. And, you know, I felt like for a little while I matured out of there as I was moving towards college, but, uh, I didn't ever deal with the real issue, and then those things started to grow. And I, you know, I still had this love of of the of praise of people. And as an adult, uh, towards the end of my college career, it kind of manifested with me being really concerned about what others thought about me, trying to overwork to obtain people's approval, uh, being willing to maybe uh, fudge the truth about myself to make myself look better. Right? I've even had moments where God is convicting me before I've even got up to say, God, you know, Josh, are, is this for me or for you? Are you here at PFN as the pastor for your own glory or for mine? Are you here to to, to love people and to care about people like Barnabas? Or are you just here for your own? And so God's had to deal with my own fire. I've had to deal with my own fire and and allow God to to work through me and, and to work in me to change me to help put out that fire. Because here's what I know, that um, you don't need to just quit lying. You don't need to just quit doing whatever the symptom is of whatever you're dealing with. You've got to deal with the heart problem. You've got to deal with the root. And uh, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, your life is full of satisfaction and joy. But when Satan is filling your heart with love of money or love of praise of people or whatever, your, your life's really ca- uh, characterized by disf- dissatisfaction, jealousy, jealousy. Uh, deceitfulness, just not happy. You're dealing with a lot of issues. So I wanna talk about five quick lessons that we can learn from Ananias and Sapphira uh, before we uh, close up. Number one, the first thing, uh, it probably should have taken two lines on your page, so uh, forgive me. It's this, uh, in the church, there are two kinds of people, and it's nearly impossible to distinguish them from the outside. In the church, there are two kinds of people, and it's nearly impossible to distinguish them from the outside. See, Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira, all three of them looked exactly the same on the outside. They were all active in church. They were generous, but deep inside their heart, one or two had a love of money and a love of praise of people that they had never repented of. Um, John Newton, he's the writer of this song, Amazing Grace. Maybe you've heard it. Um, he He wrote this. He says this, we are great imitators, mimicking the motions, words, and a speech of Christians, but often from a heart that has not been converted because we have never repented of our idolatry to money and praise. A lot of people in the church grow up learning to imitate the language of those who have had a genuine encounter with God. The tragedy is that they think that talking about these experiences like they've had them is actually the same thing as actually having these experiences and they fool themselves into thinking that because they can use the language and they know the lingo that they can get along and that they've actually had an experience with god's glory and god's in god's grace when in fact they're just acting they've just fooled themselves how do you know the difference right they, they appear the same on the outside how do you know the difference well For you personally, what you need to do is you need to look underneath the surface. See, Ananias and Sapphira talked a good game, and they did the right thing. They brought their money to the feet of the apostles, but they had hidden lies under the surface, which is number two. We cannot hide from God. That's your second lesson you can learn from this story, that you cannot hide from God. The Holy Spirit knows your thoughts as if they were being played through a loud speaker and being displayed on a screen. God knows your heart. There's a story of a man named Achan in the Old Testament. The Israelites were getting ready to go fight this battle right after they had gone um, to the Promised Land. They were going to go knock out Jericho, and Jericho was like the biggest city. And so they walked around, and they destroyed the city, right? And God told them, hey, once you destroy Jericho, don't take anything from Jericho. Just keep moving. So they had just gone and just taken over this big city. But then they go to this next town that they have to go take over. It's called Ai, a little small town it would be like if we were had an army here at pfn and we went and just took over and occupied chicago and then we decided well you know what we probably should go down and take over pekin so all the israelites were man we just conquered jericho let's just go down and we'll we will have no problem but they get down to ai and they get their rear ends handed to them and they end up what is going on so joshua's like what is going on here god well god said hey remember i told you not to take anything from jericho somebody did and so through a series of reductions and through a series of processes, they end up in this guy named Aiken's tent, and they walk into the tent they lift up the floor and then guess what's in the, underneath all this stuff from Jericho. And guys I say "He right there? right there? That's why you lost an AI right there. Because you had hidden stuff. You had, you had lied, you had hidden things from. And guess what? You can't hide from the Lord. I tell. Students in refuge all the time. I tell them this all the time. You can fool me. We'll be sitting on Wednesday or sitting on Sunday. Y'all can fool me for sure. You you come to church and everybody's giddy and we love the Lord and hey, hey, hey. You can fool me all day long. Can't fool the Lord. Cannot fool. And guess what? Aiken looked like everybody else. His tent looked like everybody else's tent. And without... That whole p- battle with AI going sideways, no one would have known, except for the Lord. So you cannot hide from him. What's underneath your tent? What's in the floorboards of your tent that you're keeping from the Lord? Number three, fear is a part of worship. This might be an, un- un- an unusual idea for you, but notice how much it permeates this passage. My favorite definition of biblical fear is this. Biblical fear is awe, Mixed with intimacy. Awe mixed with intimacy. Um anybody ever been in like a really, really big storm? Like you knew this storm was coming and it was a huge. But then you were in a safe place, like you found you found refuge. So you were able to kind of in like you were in awe of this powerful storm, this kind of almost like delighting in the, the power of this storm, but also a little intimidated, right? There's you had intimacy enough with the storm that you know if you just stepped outside the door, you could be blown away. But you were safe. That's what biblical fear is—that you have this awe. You're in awe of God's power and who He is, and there's this intimacy here, but there's still this respect, this level of like, hmm. If I go outside, this tornado is going to take me to another town. That's what that is. Uh, I I like to, I like to be, to, to joke and have fun and be lighthearted, but when it comes to this topic, when it comes to this issue, we have to be reminded that we come into the presence of a holy God, a God so holy that one sin in his presence is like a butterfly trying to land on the surface of the sun, and that we've got to be in awe and remember who God is. Uh, as, uh, As our fear of God increases, so does our sense of his love. There's this line, tis grace that taught my heart to fear. Right? So as we grow in love and grow in fear of the Lord, those things work together. Number four, sin is a deadly serious matter to God. Sin is a deadly serious matter to God. The penalty of sin is death. So I've got some questions for you to to kind of just do a little self-checkup, right? Do a little self-checkup right here, a little spiritual health checkup real quick. Number one, are you lying to the Holy Spirit this morning? Are there parts of your life that you're lying to the Holy Spirit about? Number two, uh, are you pretending to be more spiritual than you are? It's easy to do. Don't fool yourself. It's easy to, to pretend that you are more spiritual than you are. Are you acting in ways that are hypocritical? I know that in, in this place right now, you would say, you know, with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. But what does the rest of your life look during the week? Um, there's a man named Jim Elliott, and he applied this kind of uh, idea to, to thousands of Christian songs. But really, uh, he, ta- he talked about one song specifically. He talks about the song, I Surrender All. You ever heard that song? You know that song, I Surrender All? He said this about this. He said, we sing these songs, I Surrender All, but have uh, given an unyielding no to God about giving our lives and our sons and our daughters over to the work of God, to the mission field of God. He says, Christians don't tell lies. They sing them. What areas of God are you unwilling to surrender? Um... This is tough, I know. This is not your favorite message, I'm sure. But are you willing to obey Jesus in the biggest areas of your life, your finances, your reputation? You want to find out how strong your commitment is to God? Surrender those things to him. Are you willing to stand up for Jesus and share him with others regardless of what other people are saying to you? Are you treating God flippantly? Last thing, number five. We should fearfully analyze ourselves for areas of hypocrisy. Are you a person who feels like you've accepted Jesus as your savior and now have a heavenly visa card to use to sin with impunity? You know, you can see from this story that God is not mocked. He knows the truth. And I'm not saying that uh, if you lie or whatever, uh, that you're going to be struck down dead. But I will tell you that the result of sin is ultimately death. Death. It's ultimately death. Um, Are you someone who walks through the church thinking more about your glory than God's glory? I think about this last thing. Why do I ask you to to look at your own life and inspect it? Because there's things that are hidden beneath the surface in our spiritual lives that call glory away from God into ourselves. Can you imagine going to a wedding And you see the bride walking down the aisle, and there's the groom standing there, and then there's his best man standing next to him. And as the bride walks down, what you start to notice is the the best man is trying to get the attention of the bride. So the best man is kind of like winking at the bride as she's coming down, and he's like giving her the like, hey, hey." like, and he's like licking his lips, like, "Mm." he's like trying to flirt with her. If the groom caught wind of that, he would like punch that dude in the face, right? If the parents or probably anybody in the congregation saw this best man like trying to like woo the bride as she's walking down the aisle, they would like come and take that guy out, right? That's kind of what we do. That we're trying to distract and we try to take the glory we're trying to, to we're trying to take the glory. We're trying to we're trying to which which we try to go away from. We try to distract what's going on, what's going on, and we want to we want to uh, take on that. It, it, it's, just, it's just out of mind. It's, just, it's unbelievable that we would even want to take away from God's glory and want to bring it on ourselves. We'd want to to take away from what God has and give it to us. And so um, it's really critical that we examine our lives examine our spiritual health, and uh, decide this day that all we have is God's, and it's for his kingdom and his glory, that we're not going to hide anything anymore, but we're going to let God do what he wants with what's already his.